The sermon text for today is from the book of Exodus, beginning with chapter 32, verse 19. Listen as I read God's word. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> Moses saw that the people were running wild, and Aaron had let them get out of control, and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with the plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you this morning. My name is John. I serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'd love to connect with you sometime this morning. As we come to this passage of scripture, I invite you to join me in prayer. My people hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will utter hidden things, things from old, the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He did miracles in the sights of their ancestors in the land of Egypt in the region of Zon. He divided the sea and led them through. He made the water stand up like a wall. He guided them with the cloud by day and with light from the fire all night. 
He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the wilderness against the Most High. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. The day he redeemed them from the oppressor, the day he displayed his signs in Egypt, his wonders in the region of Zone. Lord, as we hear this psalm, and as we are reminded of the forgetfulness of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, as we are reminded of their idolatry and their unfaithfulness and their rebellion against you, Lord, our heart's desire is that you, you would protect us from becoming those kinds of people. Lord, we too can see your hand at work in our world. We have seen your hand at work in our own lives personally. And Lord, we ask that you would be, uh, cause us to become a people who increasingly uh, remember, remember you and who do not, like the people of Israel in the Old Testament, grieve you. Lord, we ask that as we look at this passage today that you would give us clarity, that you would help us understand what it's saying, and that as we understand what it's saying and see how it points us to Jesus, that you would, that you would mold us and shape us into his image. We long to have hearts and lives that look like, that represent your son Jesus to the world around us. And we confess, Lord, that apart from a miraculous working of your spirit, we cannot muster that up. We cannot contrive that in our own strength. And so we pray that even in this moment that your spirit would be at work in us in fresh ways. To see Jesus, to see you, God, to see your character, to see your goodness, to see the beauty of who you are. And Lord, we want to be changed. So change us, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, we are in the book of Exodus. We've been in the book of Exodus for uh, quite some time now, since the beginning of this year, and we've got just a few messages left. Uh, we find ourselves in the last sort of section of this book uh, that deals with the tabernacle, uh, this tent in the wilderness that God instructs his people to build. And interestingly, God gives the instruction for how to build it, and then he, uh, the text tells about them actually building it, and sandwiched in the middle of that is this account of the golden calf the people of Israel committing idolatry against the Lord. Uh, and this is actually one of uh, the most important sections of Scripture. This is one of those passages of Scripture that is hugely important. Uh, as, as the Lord gives Moses, he reveals his character to him. It's actually in, in the face of, in response to the golden calf and this act, of, uh, this act of disobedience that God reveals himself as the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And this is a refrain that's repeated often throughout Scripture to refer back to, to remind God's people of who he is. He is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love for his people. And not only this, oftentimes uh, the rest of the Bible looks back to this moment of the golden calf and, and talks about sins that happen in that time as if they were kind of the same thing as the golden calf. 
It refers to the idolatry and the sin of God's people throughout all generations as a kind of golden calf moment. And so it would do us well to pay attention to this portion of scripture and to see what is in it for us. Uh, as we uh, look at this passage, uh, it, it's, it's hugely important, and yet there's uh, a sense where we can feel somewhat disconnected from it. My suspicion is that nobody here has ever had the urge or the inclination to create any sort of little golden statue uh, or any kind of wooden or stone statue and has been tempted to create an idol or to bow down to something like this. We can look around the world and look at other different faith traditions and we can see that sometimes there are, there are still people even in the world today that create shrines and create idols and things like this and it feels so foreign to us. We live in a modern Western world and so creating idols and bowing down to them and worshiping them and creating these little shrines, it doesn't really connect with us. And so because of that, it can be easy for us to look at a passage like this and say, oh, that's not me. This doesn't really have anything to do with me because I would never do that. But I think as we look at this passage today, what I hope and what I hope that we've begun to see and as we continue to look at this passage, what we continue to see is that this is set up not just to tell us about Israel, but to tell us about ourselves. And so as we look at the passage today, uh, we're going to see ourselves in this text. And I think where I really want to sort of zero in here today is on the portion that you heard Marjorie read just a few minutes ago. And I want to zero in on this concept of the severe mercy of God. The language of severe mercy, uh, it didn't originate with me. I don't remember actually where it came from. I actually probably could have done you a favor and Googled it before today, but I didn't. Uh, somewhere along the way, I picked up somebody who used language of the severe mercy of God. And I think that that does a great job of helping us. It puts language to what we see in this passage here in Exodus 32 today. So we're going to spend our time this morning uh, mainly trying to wrap our minds and more importantly wrap our hearts around the severe mercy of Yahweh as we see it in the text. So if you've not already, go ahead and grab a Bible. There's some in front of you. Uh, you can join me there or you can uh, join on your mobile device. Or if you brought a Bible with you, go ahead and make your way to the book of Exodus chapter 32. As we look at the passage today, we're going to see that the passage falls into sort of two different parts. Uh, and the first part, if you put a title over it, you could title it this. You could title it The Foolish Rebellion of the People. That's the first part of the text, the foolish rebellion of the people. Now, this goes all the way back to the beginning of chapter 32, and Pastor Matt preached that last week, so I'm not going to regurgitate everything that he said, uh, but it is important for us to recognize that chapter 32 is one story. This is one account, and so we should, uh, in order to help us see the passage for today correctly, we should look at it within sort of the flow of the story of Genesis, uh, Exodus, rather, 32 from the beginning. So at the beginning of the chapter, what we see is that God's people are uh, at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses himself is on Mount Sinai in the presence of the Lord, and he's receiving instructions for this tent thing called the tabernacle. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. The tabernacle is hugely, wildly important in the history of God's people because it is the way that God has made, it's the provision God has made for his presence to be with his people. This is the greatest need uh, that humans have, is that we have been exiled from God in relationship. We have been estranged from him, and the, the, the tabernacle, with all the liturgy, and with all the sacrifices, and with all these things that can feel so, uh, so distant from us, that is the way God has provided for his presence to be with his people. 
And so the question of how can a holy God be in the presence of unholy people, and how can a God who, is, uh, who cannot be in the presence of sin without consuming it, how can he be in the presence of unholy sinful people and not consume them as well? And so the tabernacle is the provision, it's the answer, the solution to this greatest need that humans have, that we have been exiled from God in relationship. So Moses is on top of Mount Sinai right now in this moment receiving instructions for how to create this tabernacle thing, which is God's provision for their greatest need. And while he's up there, the people are at the base of the mountain and what are they doing? They've created a golden calf. (laughs) So they've like royally blown it. Uh, It didn't take them all that long before they completely screwed up. Uh, They screwed up massive And the text tells us that the anger of the Lord burned against them, that the Lord is not happy with them creating this golden calf. And so he says to Moses, go down the mountain, those people that you let out of Egypt, I'm going to destroy them, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth, and I'm going to start over with you. And interestingly, and actually quite surprisingly, Moses says, whoa, whoa, hold on, God. And Moses goes before God and intercedes for the people on their behalf. And so Moses says to God, in verse 11, he sought the favor of the Lord and said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? So he's appealing to the name and the reputation of the Lord. And he's remembering that earlier in in the book of Exodus, we've seen that God's intention for the Exodus was not simply that he would lead the people out of Egypt, but his intention for the people of Israel, as well as for the Egyptians, as well as for all of the nations, is that they would come to know the name of Yahweh, that they would see that Yahweh alone is God over the universe, and they would recognize and worship him as well. And so the purpose of the Exodus is to make the name of the Lord known. And so Moses is appealing to God here saying, whoa, whoa, hold on. If you destroy the people in the middle of the wilderness, all these nations that are around us are going to look at you and think, what in the world is he doing? He led him out here to kill him in the middle of the desert. Wow, what a great God this is you serve. And it's not going to make God look good. And so Moses appeals to God. He pleads with him and says, God, remember... (laughs) Remember that you care deeply about your name going forward, and this is not the way for your name to go forward. He then goes on to say, turn from your fierce anger, relent, do not bring on your people this disaster. Remember the promises that you made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying you're going to give them a land. Remember the promises. So he appeals to the, the name of the Lord and his fame, his, his name being known, his redemptive purposes among the nations, and he appeals to the character of God, saying, God, this is not who you are. You are not a God who makes promises and then breaks those promises. So he's appealing to the name and the reputation of the Lord, and he's appealing to the character of God, saying, I know who you are, I know what your character's like, I know what your purposes are, God, please, don't do this. It would seem very tempting, wouldn't it, for Moses, if you were in Moses' place, and God said, I'm going to kill all of them, and I'm going to start over with you. That may seem very appealing, actually, wouldn't it? (laughs) Oh, so you mean I get to be sort of a new Abraham figure? I get to be the, the, the new father of God's people? 
wow, that seems pretty appealing. But even in the face of that, what Moses does is Moses says, "Uh uh-uh, I don't want that. And so the point of what we see here with Moses, and this is really, really important to observe this, is that Moses is utterly committed to the purposes of Yahweh. This is going to come back and be really important later, but just recognize this. Moses is utterly committed to the purposes of Yahweh. So Moses is not going to God saying, okay, well, I know what he wants to hear, so I'm just going to say it, and then that's going to sort of make God change his mind. No, Moses is utterly committed to the the purposes of Yahweh, and he says, God, I know who you are. I know what you've promised. I know your character. I don't want this deal that you've made to me. I don't want to be the new head of this nation after you kill everybody. This is not good for your purposes. It's not good for your name. It doesn't reflect good on you. I don't want it. And so we see that he's utterly, completely committed. He's in solidarity with the promises and with the character and with the purposes of Yahweh. So Moses is utterly committed to the purposes of Yahweh. So this is, this is the foolish rebellion of the people. The golden calf Interestingly, the Lord, uh, I think it's as interesting or, or as surprising that the Lord actually responds to Moses like he does. It's surprising that Moses would, would turn down this invitation and then would intercede for the people, but I think it's as surprising that the, that the Lord listens to Moses. Moses comes before God and pleads with him, and God actually listens to Moses. He turns from his anger, and he does not bring on them the disaster he promised. So this is the foolish rebellion of the people. And the second part of the text that we look at here could be titled this. It could be titled the severe mercy of Yahweh. So the Lord relents from his anger. In verse 14, the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. Then if you skip down to verse 19, you see that Moses, he comes down the mountain into the camp and he saw the calf and he saw the dancing and he is filled with anger. So same language that's used to describe Yahweh earlier, that Yahweh's anger burned against the people. Now we see something of Moses reflecting the character of God in that he sees their idolatry, he sees their sin, and he also is filled with anger. And so he smashes the covenant tablets in front of the people in a very visible public place, which is a sort of physical demonstration of a, re- a reality that's already taken place. The people have already breached the covenant. The people have already broken the covenant. And so Moses smashing those tablets is just a physical sort of representation of the covenant that has already been broken by the people. So he comes on the mountain. He sees everything. He's furious. He breaks the stone tablets. And he goes to Aaron and he says, Aaron, what in the world is happening? And Aaron's response, as you indicated earlier, is comical. (laughs) It's actually kind of funny. Aaron says in verse 22, don't be angry. You know how prone these people, take notice of that language, these people, are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire. And wouldn't you know, just like that, out came this golden calf. (laughs) And you're like, dude, Aaron. Like Moses, like he's old, but he's not stupid. Like this, you know, this kind of stuff doesn't just happen. And like, that's the point is that this is absurd. So Moses comes down, he confronts Aaron and Aaron's sin. And the first thing Aaron does is shift the blame to someone else. Now, can you think of another time in scripture where people disobeyed the instruction of the Lord? 
They did what was right in their own eyes, and the first thing they did when confronted with their sin was they shifted the blame to someone else. Oh, this is, just, this is exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 3. And what we're supposed to pick up on is that what happens here with the golden calf is just a rewind and play again of Genesis chapter 3. Every single sin, every single act of idolatry that's taken place ever since Genesis 3 is just a retelling of that same story with different people in a different place with different circumstances with a different outcome. So what they do here is they're just replaying Genesis 3 all over again. They've done what's right in their own eyes. And it's, and it's comical. <laughs> it's comical. It's, it's awful. And in verse 25, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. So just notice here, uh, last week, Pastor Matt mentioned this. Uh, there's, there's language this, that describes the people of Israel as stiff-necked as running wild and out of control. Those are all three words that would be used to describe uh, a certain animal in the farming community, and that animal is a calf that's been unbroken. So notice here how not only is this just a replay of Genesis chapter three, but what's actually happening here is the people are, instead of bearing the image of Yahweh like they're designed to, the people are actually bearing the image of the calf that they're worshiping. So their worship is shaping them into something. They're taking on the form of the image of the calf. And so they've become a laughingstock to their enemies. So Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and he said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did exactly as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 people died. Then verse 35, and the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Okay. If we are trying to read this chapter of Scripture as alert and uh, attentive readers, uh, there should be maybe a question that comes to our mind at this point. And that question, maybe you're thinking of this right now, is didn't the text say God relented? It says God relented and he said he would not bring on this disaster and then God commanded that 3,000 people were killed and then God sent out a plague. And you're like, wait a minute, how is it that God relented and yet God is still executing his judgment and his justice on the people? This is something of a, uh, this requires a little bit of nuance here, okay? So we're going to kind of just wade into these waters together. But this is where we begin to see the severe mercy of Yahweh. So first, just remember that God has given his people his instruction. He's given them the Ten Commandments, and he's given them the first uh, sort of book of the covenant, uh, the first portion of the law code. And in that, he says this. He's already communicated to his people Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord, other than Yahweh, other than me, must be destroyed. Which is a word that literally means devoted to destruction. So God has already communicated to the people that if you worship other gods, if you bow down before them, if you create idols like this, the consequence is death. Okay, so what we have to just get out of our mind here is a picture of a God who is just flying off the handle in sort of uh, uncontrollable anger. 
who was just sort of in a moment, just sort of the, the flip is switched, and all of a sudden he was this happy God who wants to bless his people, and all of a sudden he's just angry and he's going to kill them all. No, that's not at all what's happening. God has communicated to his people, if you do this, this will be the consequence. So I think that's what the, the killing of the 3,000 people here, I think, is related to this instruction that the Lord gave. And so the 3,000 people who were killed here are the people who were most uh, directly involved or the instigators of the golden calf incident. So those are the people who were killed. But that still doesn't, that still doesn't answer all of it, does it? <laughs> Because you've got the plague that comes on everyone else. And God sends a plague and now everybody else is uh, suffering for it. And I think in, in, in part what that is is sort of a warning shot across the bow, so to speak. Where God is, the text doesn't say that God killed a bunch of people. It just says they had a plague. It doesn't tell how many people, if any of them actually died from it. But I think what's happening is, is that the instigators of the golden calf incident are uh, put to death in accordance with what God said. And then there's a warning shot across the bow for the rest of the Israelites to say, this is, this is serious business. This idolatry thing, this worshiping other gods thing, this is nothing to be trifled with. This is a big deal. But it's still, in a way, we, we, we can probably all picture people in our minds, uh, friends or neighbors or coworkers who are not yet followers of Jesus. And maybe some of you here today even uh, who are not yet followers of Jesus, maybe you feel this as well. This text, uh, th- this can feel like an overreaction on God's part. That people commit idolatry and then God kills them. And it can feel like, okay, God, will you just calm down for a minute? Will you just take a deep breath? Just sort of think level-headed here for a moment. Don't fly off the handle. And it can look like an overreaction. And even for those of us who are followers of Jesus, who maybe have followed Jesus for decades, We see a passage like this where someone commits a sin and then they're put to death and it can still feel like, man, that just feels like, it feels like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. It feels like someone committed idolatry, they committed a sin, yes, but then God kills them? They're put to death? And it can feel like something of an overreaction. Let me just, let me just try and frame this in uh, in a different way this morning. When we look at a passage like this, and whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, when we would look at a passage like this and feel like this is God flying off the handle, when we would feel like this is an overreaction, I just would humbly submit to you that we can only feel that way when we have, when we have lost sight of, when we don't grasp the destructive power of idolatry and sin. We can only feel like it is an overreaction for people to die because of idolatry when we have failed to recognize the impact, the destructive power, and even the generational destructive power of idolatry and sin and just how bad it really is. I mean, it says something about the human heart, doesn't it? That we are, uh, that I, w- I, w- I would suspect. Uh, that most people are far more outraged by the consequence of their sin than the act of the idolatry in the first place. We're far more outraged that like, man, God would kill 3,000 people, and we're less outraged that these people would commit idolatry against their creator. And I think what it reveals, 
when we begin to find ourselves feeling this way, and, and let me just be honest with you, this is something that like I even struggle with this, okay? So there, there's no... There's no guilt in this, okay? I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody else. I'm saying this is something that, that I find this creeping up in my own heart. When I find myself being more outraged by the consequence of their sin than by the fact that they sinned against God in the first place, what it reveals inside of me is that at least in that moment, I have lost sight of who God is. The only reason, the only way that I can think that this is an overreaction is when I have minimized when I have downplayed, when I have tried to tame sin to be, oh, it's just a part of, you know, it's just my personality. It's just how I'm wired. Oh, it was a boo-boo. Oh, it was, it was a mistake. You know, it just was a, a white lie. It wasn't too big of one. You know, like we can come up with all these ways of justifying and sort of domesticating the idolatry and sin that exists within inside of our own heart. And it's only then that we can look at this and say this is an overreaction when we've completely uh, diminished the significance of it, and when we have forgotten who God is. From the very first page of Scripture, we see a marvelous, wonderful picture of who God is. We see that he's overflowing with love. He created as an act of the overflow and the abundance of his love that existed within uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit from all of eternity. He's overflowing with love and grace and he's given us a world that is filled with beauty and creativity and wonder and is so filled with what seems to be maybe limitless possibilities. He's given us this, this world that is filled with good things for our enjoyment. He's given us every good thing we need for life and flourishing. He's given all of that. And then in the face of when people, when humans rebel against him, what God does is he does not scrap the plan and destroy all of them. He shows mercy and he shows compassion. And we see that he meets Adam and Eve in the midst of their deepest vulnerability. He meets them in the midst of their nakedness and he covers them. He makes provision for their deepest need. And we see that God then, throughout his redemptive purposes, doesn't find and call all of these super awesome people whose lives look really great and polished on the outside. No, in fact, the opposite is true, that every single person God calls, Abraham, Moses, Isaac, Jacob, every single person God uses in his redemptive purposes are people that are massively screwed up, just like we are. And we see the, the patience and the long-suffering and the love of God that he would pursue us and that he would love us in spite of the continuous rebellion that we live in, 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 in spite of the ways that we have look to other things and other people to be a source of identity and security as a source of approval and affirmation. We've looked to these other things besides God for those things, and in the face of that, God still loves us. And so we have to remember, we have to get a clear picture in our mind of who this God is, and when we see who this God is, all of a sudden you begin to realize, okay, so you have this magnificent, wonderful, gracious creative, loving God, and these people have spit in his face by creating a golden calf. They bow at the altar of the golden calf and reject him. And it's only when we get a clear picture of who God is that we can see how grievous it is that we would ever do this. The approval of God, our Heavenly Father, on us is the only approval that actually in the end makes any difference. The only approval that it all matters. 
And how often do we find ourselves checking how many likes we have on the pictures we posted on social media to, to, to gain a sense of approval? How often have we looked at the condition or the size of our house or the car we drive or the clothes we wear or all the external things that we can sort of recombobulate around us to be a source of identity so that people will like us, so that people will approve of us, so that people will, will, will enjoy us. And there's a point where that crosses over the line of we're enjoying the good gifts of God, it crosses the line into idolatry when we need that and we search for the approval of people rather than the approval of God. And idolatry, as Matt said last week, this is one of the best things he said, he said idolatry is amazingly deceptive. Nobody thinks they're greedy because everybody can look and see someone else who has more money, who spends more frivolously than they do, and nobody in the world thinks I'm greedy. And so it's deceptive. There's a line that gets crossed where God is, our our, our Father, our Creator is all satisfying. And we spend hours binging Netflix. And we look to experiences and pleasure and sex. And we look to all these things that are good gifts from God but we spit in the face of God by taking the one who is the source of delight and we reject him for something so small. And so it's only when we see a picture of who God is that we can begin to see just how egregious it is that we would ever choose to worship, that we would make these things into idols in our hearts. And we do, friends. There's a moment, there's a line that's crossed where we cross the line from enjoying the good gifts of God to looking to them to be something for us that they were never designed to be in the first place. And that's idolatry. And all of us are prone. We will fight and spend our entire lives trying to keep those things in their proper place, trying to keep them in their proper order in our lives. And so when we see who God is, that gives us a clearer picture of the seriousness of this golden calf incident, doesn't it? It gives us a clearer picture of the seriousness of the sin that exists in our lives, the idolatry that exists in our own lives. And what we have to take away from this passage is this. God loves his people enough to cut out of them the cancer of idolatry. God loves his people enough to cut out of them the cancer of idolatry. Friends, we get this. We will literally pay thousands of dollars for people to cut us open and hurt us to take cancer out of us because we realize how serious it is. And then we would complain that the punishment is too strict when God punishes sin, which is infinitely more dangerous and cancerous than even physical cancer is. God loves his people enough to cut out of them the cancer of idolatry and cut out of them the cancer of sin. And so what this should give us a picture of is that even in the midst of his judgment, God is overflowing with mercy. Even God's judgment is born out of a deep love for his people. And so this this thing of the judgment of God and the mercy of God, these two things cannot be separated from one another. They belong together. Even in his judgment, God is overflowing with mercy with mercy. And the clearest expression we see of this in the Bible is in the person of Jesus. In the cross of Jesus, as we see 
the, the just punishment for sin, the justice and the judgment of God falling on the person of Jesus, that second member of the Trinity, God himself taking on the burden of our sin so that mercy could be extended, so that forgiveness could be extended, so that a right relationship, that atonement is the theological word for it, the atonement that we need, the relationship being restored with God could be made right again for those who trust in the person of Jesus and his work for us. So it's in the person of Jesus that we see the fruition of what sort of in this passage looks like a little bit of a, like a sprout coming out of the ground. It's like a little green sproutlet coming out and it grows and it grows and we get to the person of Jesus and we see the fullest, clearest expression of the coming together of the mercy and the judgment of God that has ever been displayed. One of the interesting things about this passage that I think is uh, just so important because it it helps us to understand uh, what the death and the resurrection of Jesus is all about is, is this. This struck me in a fresh way as I was uh, studying for this message. In verse 14, it says, The Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. But then, verse 30, The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And so I think what we're supposed to see here is that God turning away, God relenting from that disaster doesn't, bring, doesn't necessarily bring atonement. There's still a relationship that needs to be restored. And yes, God relented from the disaster that he had threatened, but there's still atonement that needs to be made. There's still a relationship, there's still a breach in the relationship that has been created that God has to do something about. And notice what Moses says. I'll go up to the Lord, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Verse 31, so Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. So just notice here, the first time Moses intercedes for the people, he shows complete solidarity with the purposes of God. The second time Moses intercedes, he shows solidarity with the people of Israel. He shows a kind of uh, utter commitment to them. And the commitment that he shows is he essentially says to God, he has so identified himself with the people and with their good that he says to God, forgive their sin, but if not, take my life instead. So he's so identified with the people that he's willing to give up his life for theirs. Verse 33, the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. So Moses offers his life in place of theirs and God says, Yahweh will not accept Moses' life for theirs because Moses is not the right one. Moses is as, as great of a man, as great of a leader as we see him becoming in these chapters of the Bible. Moses is still just as flawed as the rest of the people are. And so God does not accept Moses' life 
for the people. But as the story of Scripture continues, we see that later there would be another intercessor who would come, who would so closely identify with the people that he would be willing to give his life in place of theirs. And we see God himself in the person of Jesus taking on human flesh, and he, like Moses, was utterly committed to the purposes of Yahweh. He was utterly committed to the end, to the purposes of his father, to the point where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's under such emotional and spiritual and psychological and physical distress that he is sweating droplets that have blood in them. And in that moment, he says to the father, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he shows complete and utter solidarity, a complete and utter commitment to the purposes of God, even if it means his life will be lost. And then there's this interesting story. It appears in all four of the Gospels, and you you know that when something appears in all four of the Gospels, that it's kind of important. And so there's this scene where Jesus is standing trial, and Pilate says, hey, you know, it's about this time every year that we release a prisoner. And so we've got this guy named Barabbas, whose name is Jesus Barabbas. (laughs) So Jesus and then Barabbas literally means it's Baraba, which means uh, son of Abba, son of the father. And so he says to the people, hey, who do you want me to release to you? I can release to you Jesus, the king of the Jews, or Jesus, son of the father. And the people say, give us Barabbas. He was an insurrectionist who was uh, guilty of murder in an uprising against the Roman Empire. And he would have been destined for execution. And so all four Gospels tell this story of Barabbas and the people saying, no, give us Barabbas instead of giving us Jesus. And what happened next, and, and, and what the Gospel writers intend for us to see, is that Jesus went to the cross that was meant for Barabbas. Jesus went to the cross and died the death that Barabbas was supposed to die. And so this is, this is something of a picture. It's a parable. It's an illustration of the broader picture that we see in Scripture, that God himself and the person of Jesus came and gave himself up so that guilty people could be set free. And so we see that Jesus, like Moses, is utterly committed to the purposes of his father, And he's so closely identified with the people of Israel that he's willing to give his life in place of theirs. Now friends, this is is what the death and the resurrection of Jesus accomplishes for us. It accomplishes not only the turning away of the relenting, the turning away of God's wrath, the turning away of God's judgment that is rightly deserved for us because of our idolatry and sin. It accomplishes the atonement, the, the making right of the relationship that has been breached And the Apostle Paul says it like this in the book of Colossians. He says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated, you were exiled from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, through death, to present you holy and blameless in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. And so Jesus, as he hung on the cross, absorbed the justice of God, absorbed the judgment of God for the sin and the idolatry that exists in our lives. And his death also accomplished 
the mending of the relationship between us and God, the, 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 the atonement aspect of it. So this is what Jesus' death and resurrection accomplishes. It accomplishes